BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. As much of California reopens, elected officials in Orange County are doing so while disregarding the orders of their own public health department to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The sheriff there says he will not enforce a new countywide order requiring people to wear face coverings in public. KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb has the story. OC Sheriff Don Barnes made his position pretty clear during this week's meeting of the County Board of Supervisors. We are not the mask police, nor do I intend to be the mask police. The countywide directive from OC Public Health requires a face covering anytime someone is in public. But in Orange County, there's been plenty of pushback to beach closures and statewide stay-at-home orders. This week, OC supervisors balked at the new state rules for houses of worship, that they fill to 25% of maximum capacity, or 100 people. The sheriff's position, along with defiant supervisors, has OC health officials looking to modify their order. Still requiring masks, but only if you can't keep six feet from someone else. Here's the county's health director, Clayton Chow. When you are not able to keep a distance is when you must wear a mask. Orange County has emerged as a hotspot of COVID-19 infections in the last two weeks. Second, during that time period, only to L.A. County. A recent tally puts the total number of confirmed cases at 5,500. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb. More than 100 CVS pharmacies in California now offer coronavirus testing even to the uninsured. KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg has more. The CVS locations span from Napa to San Diego. Although a doctor's note isn't needed for the test, an online appointment ahead of time is. That's possible starting this Friday. People will receive a self-swab kit at a drive through window or in a CVS parking lot. And then a trained pharmacist will watch them swab themselves to ensure a proper specimen is collected. An independent lab will release the results about three days later. Walgreens has also started testing for the coronavirus in some states, but it's not yet available in California. Governor Gavin Newsom says pharmacies are key to increasing the state's testing capacity. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. In Sacramento, an embattled Orange County assemblyman has been stripped of his committee memberships after a sexual harassment investigation. KQED's Katie Orr has more. The legislature's Workplace Conduct Unit has found Republican Assemblyman Bill Bro acted in an inappropriate sexual manner toward the person who filed the complaint, including insinuating he would provide political help if they returned to his apartment with him. This is one of several sexual harassment accusations that have been made against Bro, which he says are politically motivated. The three-term lawmaker has also been investigated for campaign finance violations. 
The various scandals may have cost Bro his seat in the legislature. He finished fourth in his primary re-election race last March and won't move forward to the runoff. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. For parents struggling to help their children through distance learning, hang in there. You're coming down the home stretch. The last day of school is in sight. Now the question is, what will back to school look like this fall? Here in the Bay Area, several school districts are considering temperature checks for students and staff. That's if they reopen physical campuses at the start of the new school year. KQED's Julia McAvoy has that story. Guidelines for how schools can safely reopen will be out in early June, according to state schools chief Tony Thurmond, who says prevention of the spread of COVID-19 will be key. And so that means that at schools, there will be individuals who will be taking temperatures of students. Face coverings for students and staff, physical distancing on buses and on school campuses are also expected. Thurman did not address who would pick up the costs for these measures at a time when districts are facing budget cuts in the economic fallout from the pandemic. L.A. Unified School District officials have said it will be difficult to return to classrooms without the funding needed to pay for safety measures to prevent the spread of the virus. For The California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy. Next to the latest in our series of conversations with people along Atlantic Boulevard, a major commercial street in L.A. County. My California Report colleague Saul Gonzalez has been talking to people he meets there about how they're coping with the pandemic and their hopes for recovery looking ahead. Yesterday, we reported that barbershops and hair salons in the majority of California counties can start reopening this week. L.A. is one of the remaining counties that isn't yet meeting the state's criteria to open these kinds of businesses. And today we hear from Atlantic Boulevard barbershop owner Gabriel Torres in North Long Beach. I think my biggest thing is is that I have that I'm not able to work, not because, you know, I run a legit business here in North Long Beach and the ability to not be able to work really sucks because I am responsible. I have been a business owner now for 17 years and um, having to have to still pay my rent is something I, I really I'm really fighting right now. I know it's probably still unclear even in your own head, but when you do get up and running, what do you think that's going to be like? What, what, what is recovery to you going to look like? Um, I think that's just one of the scariest parts. Like I said, I've been in business now for 17 years and um, trying to keep social media is what I'm using as an outlet to uh, keep my clients in the loop of what we're doing. And, and not only that, it's, it's to, to get them to all come back. You know, something that we've worked very hard to stay in business for 17 years. And now the biggest thing is like, is everybody coming back? Is everybody gonna be okay? What's, what's life gonna look like? Um, so that's even today, I'm here cleaning up shop, giving away free shirts to my clients, signing them, come get a shirt. You know, just to try to keep everything in the loop. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it is pretty scary as a business owner. And, and then finally, what do you think it's going to mean for your fellow merchants and employers and employees up and down Atlantic? I think a lot of people aren't coming back. I mean, this is it for them. That's... Um, I think uh, it kind of gave me the chills right now because, like I said, I've been going up and down this street for almost 20 years, and I do see a lot of businesses that are going to close down. And um, like I said, being a small business owner, it's not easy to... There's a lot of sacrifices made to get to where we're at now. So to see a, a fellow business close down, it hurts my heart. Like it really does because I know the sacrifices that they've made to get there. It just sucks. It really does.
That's barbershop owner Gabriel Torres in North Long Beach. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Ideas for storing leftover paint to keep it fresh and tips for using it up can be found at paintcare.org. Doctors tell patients recovering from COVID-19 at home to stay in a room by themselves and avoid sharing a bathroom. But that's not easy for low-income immigrants doubling or even tripling up to afford rent in the Bay Area. KQED's Farida Javala Romero reports. Blanca Aleman is an asylum seeker from El Salvador. She came to the U.S. in 2016 to reunite with relatives living in the Bay Area. Today, Aleman's whole family, mom, brothers, and nephews, live together. A total of 13 people in a three-bedroom house in Richmond. It's very difficult, she says. People wait in line for the one bathroom they share and to cook in the kitchen. Now, those inconveniences also mean a higher risk of transmitting the coronavirus or getting sick. First, Aleman's aunt got COVID. Then, Aleman's oldest daughter, a 13-year-old, was confirmed positive. How am I going to distance her, she asks. There isn't enough space. Aleman worries her entire household could catch the virus. Aleman also worries for her unborn baby. She's five months pregnant. Her doctor says there's not enough data to know if or how the coronavirus could hurt Aleman's baby. Aleman tried finding somewhere else to live, but she says smaller apartments, even in less desirable neighborhoods, are too expensive. Because of high housing costs, California's rate of overcrowding is more than double the national one, according to the Public Policy Institute of California. And Latinos are more likely to live in overcrowded, multi-generational homes. They often don't have the luxury to be in settings where they can really maintain that type of distance that's required. Dr. Kirsten Bivens-Domingo is a professor of epidemiology at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. As we emerge from stay-at-home orders, she expects more outbreaks at a time when more people are losing their jobs. Bibens Domingo calls it a twin epidemic. This is an epidemic of the virus and an epidemic of the economic crisis. And it's the latter that I think will really make it much more difficult to keep the former under control, particularly in the communities that are hardest hit. Aleman lost her work as an office cleaner in March. Other adults in her household have also lost income. The entire family now relies on food banks to eat beans, fried rice, and Aleman's favorite, fresh handmade tortillas. Living with relatives means they all save on rent and other expenses. It also means they support each other in many practical ways. They take turns cooking meals and caring for each other's kids. We have each other, she says. Aleman will need her family now in a new way. Two weeks after I first spoke with her, she texted to say she felt sick, shortness of breath, bad headaches. Her test for COVID came back positive. One more case of about 37,000 Latinos confirmed with COVID in California. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero.
One of the last steps in PG&E's planned exit from bankruptcy got underway yesterday. The confirmation trial, as it's called, is taking place on Zoom. Some context, over six weeks this month and last, 87,000 PG&E fire victims were supposed to vote on a compensation settlement deal with the utility. Yesterday, critics of that deal questioned a manager at Prime Clerk, the company that sent out those ballots, asking exactly how the vote was tallied. PG&E says 88 percent of those who voted supported the deal, well above the two-thirds the company needed to move forward with getting out of bankruptcy. But it turns out tens of thousands of people who lost their homes and businesses to PG&E caused wildfires didn't vote. Maybe they didn't want to. Maybe it was complicated. But here's another possible reason. While PG&E says all ballots were mailed in early April, a growing number of fire survivors tell KQED they got theirs a full month or more later. My name is Cheryl Maynard, and I lost my home in Paradise, California, in the campfire. I received my ballot after the conclusion of the voting process. I think it was pretty ridiculous because they said they mailed it out on April 8th, and yet I got mine late. Other people, they're still getting theirs. Some people haven't received them at all. My son never got one. So, I mean, how can you have a fair vote when people didn't even get a ballot? Cheryl Maynard is one of 28 people who've told us they got their ballots weeks after PG&E says they went out. We've been asking PG&E how this happened for the last month. We've gotten statements saying they're working to pay victims quickly and fairly, but still no answers on what might have gone wrong. Finally this morning, one more non-pandemic story for you. It's a familiar one. California is once again suing the Trump administration, this time over the move to roll back national standards that require better fuel economy for new cars and trucks. KQED's Kate Wolf has the story. In March, federal environment regulators modified existing clean car standards implemented by President Obama. Now, Attorney General Javier Becerra is leading a group of 22 other states in calling for a review of the rollbacks. He argues the administration knew the change would have a significant climate impact. This administration's decision to ignore those concerns and move forward with this plan creates more pollution, more illness, and more economic risk. That should be a concern to all of us. The federal EPA said in a statement that it does not comment on pending litigation, but maintains the changes are safe and set reasonable targets for the auto industry. For the California Report, I'm Kate Wolf. And that is the California Report for this Thursday. I'm Lily Jamali. Have a great day, everyone. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Ideas for storing leftover paint to keep it fresh and tips for using it up can be found at paintcare.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems, and Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment, Earth Justice, because the earth needs a good lawyer. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!